the deity of Jesus in the Gospel of John. We've got a fascinating interview for you coming your way right now. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I remember shortly after I came to faith in 1971 that my mom had the TV on. So I came to faith November, December of 1971. My mom, my Jewish mom, not a religious Jewish woman, but Jewish woman. She is walking around doing her work in the kitchen, whatever. And there's a TV on and it was playing King of Kings, a movie about Jesus. And at the end, I believe that was the movie there was a line saying something like, and the people knew that there was only one Lord. And my mom said to me, they shouldn't say that Jesus is God. I thought, well, is is he God? I don't even know. So I called up one of my friends in the church and I asked her, we're all new believers. I said, is is Jesus God? She said, oh, it's it's like really difficult. It's kind of a mystery of Trinity and things. And I said, oh, okay. She goes, no, but he is God. I said, Oh, all right. (laughs) Well, little did I know that that would be the beginning of a massive battleground that I'd be involved in for decades to come with the Jewish community and with other groups professing to be followers of Jesus. And the question of the deity of Jesus, God's triunity, these remain major questions that believers struggle with that come under attack to this day. This is Michael Brown. This is The Line of Fire. And I've got a special guest on with me today, Randy Rome. He is a pastor and a professor. He's the author of the book, God the Son, which talks about John's presentation of Jesus and why it matters. Now, we get contacted constantly. Ah, okay. You know what? I mispronounced the last name already. I misread what was on my screen. Dr. Randy Rehm, we'll get that right. So what happened was uh, we got contacted by Randy and he said he was working on this book was going to be coming out based on doctoral work he had done and things like that. Could I take a look at it? And we get requests like this, of course, day and night. That's an understatement. And wherever I travel, people give me books. Can you look at this? Maybe give me an endorsement. And especially if I don't know the person, there's almost no way I could even consider it. But in this case, it got my attention because Randy had the mind and understanding of a scholar, but was able to present things in a way that any interested reader could grasp. And I thought, this is, this is something I'd really love to help get out to a wider audience. So we scheduled the entire broadcast today to focus on this subject, God the Son. This is the presentation of Jesus and John's gospel. If you have a question about this, whether you agree with the position or not, if you have a question, give us a call, 866-348-7884. Randy, great to have you on the line of fire. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, Dr. Brown. It's a great honor and pleasure to be on your program today. I'm a big fan of yours, your books, your articles, your videos and podcasts, and I'm so grateful to the Lord for your ministry and also the 
very thankful for the nice things you wrote in the foreword to my book. Oh, well, thank you. I, I appreciate the kind words very much. So, so, Randy, just give us your background, the academic background and the spiritual background. Sure. Well, I'm the senior pastor of Stony Creek Church in Utica, Michigan, and I've, I've been serving here uh, since uh, I started the church in 1991. I became a Christ follower in 1973 during the Jesus Movement, just a couple years after you did. And I was thunderstruck by the portrait of Jesus in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John. Uh, in the very first sentence, Jesus, or the Word, as he's called there, is called God. The Word was God. And then down in verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he's both God and man. And then at the climax of the book, he's worshipped as God by a skeptic turned believer, the doubting Thomas, who calls him my Lord and my God. He doubles down on it. He calls him his Lord and his God. And of course, Jesus claims the prerogatives of God uh, throughout the Gospel of John. He, he calls himself the I Am and uh, many other indications. But also, many questions surfaced as I began reading through uh, the Gospels, and, and John especially, and of course I ran into Jehovah's Witnesses and skeptics. My dad was an agnostic uh, in my, my early years be before uh, he became a Christian. And then later by scholars, as I went through my academic training, uh, I, I ran into a lot of scholars who were skeptical that Jesus is God in the New Testament. Some even deny that uh, the Gospel of John has Jesus as fully God. And, of course, there are biblical, what, what they call, uh, biblical Unitarians. And uh, they, they want to know why the Father is so often called God, but the Son is only called God three times. Is he God in the full sense? Uh, Jesus is often called uh, Lord in the New Testament, but seldom is he called God. Just a, a handful of times he's called God in John three times, and uh, just a few other times in the New Testament. But the Father, the Father is called God uh, about 80 times in John's Gospel. And so why? And, and how can he be God and the Son of God? Well, which is it? Uh, was he the Son before the Incarnation? Why is the Son so clearly subordinate to the Father, especially in John's Gospel, where it you know, he's, he's declared to be God in John's Gospel, but uh, the, the Gospel of John emphasizes his subordination to the Father more than any other New Testament book. Uh, why didn't God, Jesus ever say, I am God, worship me? And, you know, he, he certainly claimed to be God in various ways, but why is it so obscure, or it seems obscure many times? What about the Holy Spirit and the Trinity and all that? And so all through my formal education, Jesus, deity, and the Trinity was my favorite topic. I was always trying to understand it better and answer the tough questions, uh, and so many of them clustered in the Gospel of John. And so as I, I got my bachelor's degree in, in uh, biblical literature, I got a, a master's degree in theology at Dallas Seminary, and then a, a doctor of ministry degree at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. But when I went for my Ph.D. in New Testament studies at the University of Wales, uh, it, it, it was a no-brainer what uh, 
topic I was going to pick for my Ph.D. dissertation. I wanted to really explore this whole thing about equality and hierarchy within the God of John's Gospel. And uh, later I ended up publishing my dissertation after I had revised it a little bit. And that book did the heavy lifting. It was the scholarly foundation for the book that I've just released recently, God the Son, uh, where I'm trying to bring the cookies down from the high shelf so that everyone can enjoy them. I wrote the sort of book that I always wished existed back when I was searching through these questions myself. There's a robust defense of Jesus' deity and the Holy Spirit, too. It's, it's mainly on Jesus' relationship to the Father in John's Gospel, but we explore other passages in the New Testament and Old Testament and uh, also talk about the Holy Spirit in the last chapter. Uh, but I, I, I wanted to you know, explore, well, why does this matter? Uh, if, let's say, the Je- Jehovah's Witnesses are right, that, Je- that the Word was a God, or the biblical Unitarians are right, that, that uh, the Son just kind of represents uh, the Father, but isn't actually, isn't ontologically God, how would that affect my life? How would it affect salvation? How would it affect the cross? What about my prayer life, uh, worship, my view of God? Does it really matter? Sometimes one woman asked me once, does it really matter if Jesus is God? And I thought that was a good question, uh, but how do I answer that from, from Scripture? Yeah. And so that's a little bit about the, uh, of the background behind uh, why I wrote this book and how I came to the point where I'm on your show talking about it. Yeah, and again, what got my attention, Randy, was the sound scholarship that laid the foundation for a book where in practical, clear terms, asking the practical questions, laying out simple but deep biblical answers, anyone that really wants to unpack this glorious subject would be able to do it. Uh, Let's start here and see if we can do this in two minutes. John 1.1 gets everybody's attention. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's how it is in our English translations with a capital G. But a stand, but the last word, a, a standard objection would be, well, why doesn't the Greek say the Word was the God, the way we'd expect it in Greek? And the answer is, well, grammatically, that's not the way to do it. Giving you a short answer, how would you respond to that? Well, John had other options available to him uh, for the word order when he was writing that uh, first sentence of John's Gospel. And the word order that he chose, theos hain halagos, is the word order that would most emphasize that Jesus is God by nature. He's not the same person as the Father, as the God earlier in the sentence, but he has the same nature. He has the same, if you will, the same DNA as God the Father, and so he is equal to the Father by nature. If he had wanted to say that he was a God, if John wanted to say that, he would have worded it a different way. He would have put the word order differently. Got it. So someone that is serious understanding Greek would recognize that emphasis and then also, if you read it the Jehovah's Witness way, that the word was a God, we now have two gods that we're supposed to serve or worship, which creates a bigger problem, doesn't it? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. If, if the Jehovah's Witnesses really take that translation seriously, as Bruce Metzger, the great scholar of uh, the 20th century, the great Greek scholar, said, they're polytheists, uh, because there is only one God. But John 1.1, uh, he steers such a narrow and beautiful course between polytheism, he doesn't say that there are two gods, he says that the Son, or the Lagos, the Word, has the same nature as the Father. So they are one, but they're also distinct in who they are. They're one in what they are, but they're distinct in who they are. All right, friends, the new book by Randy Ream, the last name is spelled R H. You know, I, I, there we go. R H E A U M E. God the Son. I'll get the spelling right. God the Son. What John Port, John's portrait of Jesus means and why it matters. We'll pursue that. We'll take your calls too, right here. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You know, normally when I do an interview, the phone lines are pretty silent. Everyone just listens to the interview and make it a call here or there. But the phone lines are lit up today. So we're going to get to a bunch of your calls as we talk with Pastor Randy Ream about his new book, God the Son. Randy, let me throw out a verse to you that's frequently mentioned in the Gospel of John as one that would argue against the deity of Jesus, namely John 17, 3, where Jesus prays to his Father and says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So it would seem that Jesus is not just saying that he, as a man, is praying to his Father, but he identifies the Father as the only true God, separate from Jesus Christ, who has been sent by that one true God. How do you respond to that? Well, that's a great question. Uh, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, it's possible, perhaps even likely, that John, the same author who wrote the Gospel of John, refers to uh, the Son as the true God, uh, the only true God. And so, that's a possibility right there. Of course, Jesus was uh, a monotheist. He believed that there was only one true God. But it's also important to know that God is the title that is normally given to the Father. The Son is uh, more often in the New Testament called Lord, which uh, in its highest sense is uh, a, a title of deity. Uh, it stands for Yahweh. Uh, the kurios is the Greek, but Yahweh is the Old Testament uh, word for that, of course, as you know, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew name. And so uh, the, the typical title of deity for the Father is God, but the typical title of deity for the Son is Lord. Right, so then this would simply be a, a way of in staying in keeping with biblical terminology like 1 Corinthians 8 that says that there's only one God the Father and only one Lord Jesus it doesn't mean that the Father is not Lord and it doesn't mean the Son is not God it just Perfect. refers to them as as primarily referenced 
if if someone said, all right, have you ever heard any explanation of John twenty twenty eight, where Thomas speaks of Jesus and says to him, my Lord and my God, you know, Jehovah's Witness explanations, other explanations. Have, have you ever seen anything, any academic work where there was a plausible explanation of anything other than that Thomas was recognizing the risen Jesus as God? Well, not anything that was convincing. Yes, there there have been some scholars who have tried to argue along those lines that uh, Jesus is being called a God in a representational sense, uh, similar to the way a press secretary would uh, be thought of as representing the president or an ambassador as representing his country. Uh, but the, the, the problem with Views like that is that Thomas is speaking directly to Jesus. Mm-hmm. The Lord of me and the God of me. He is calling Jesus God. He's not just describing full deity to Jesus, but he's also calling him his God, his Lord. Uh, and so, uh, really, uh, there, there are all kinds of attempts to wiggle out of it, but. Uh, the, the plain sense makes sense here. It's definitely perhaps the strongest description of the deity of Christ found anywhere in the New Testament. And it is the climax of John's Gospel, because yeah. in, the, in the very next verse, uh, Jesus uh, commends Thomas for his belief. He says, because you've seen me, you've believed. Well, what did he believe? He believed that Jesus should be worshipped as Lord and God. And then in the next verse, John says that uh, this is what really believing in Jesus means. It's, uh, you know, he's defined throughout the Gospel of John what Son of God means. Uh, He's the same nature as, as the Father. And so, uh, John is encapsulating in Thomas's confession uh, who Jesus is and how we are to understand him as believers, how we are to approach him, how we are to believe in him and worship him as our Lord and our God. It's a fascinating verse, and it also helps to answer the, the verse that you brought up earlier out of John seventeen three. If the Father can only be called God and no one else can, well. What's Jesus doing being called God in the Gospel of John? And not rebuking Thomas for doing it either. or, or exactly. it, Like the angels at the end of the book of Revelation, the angel says to John, don't, don't worship me, don't bow, bow, bow down before me. But that kind of worship is the worship Jesus receives, not just like bowing down before a king, but the worship that goes to God in Revelation 5. All created beings worship this one true God, and they worship the Lamb alongside friends the new book god the son what john's portrait of jesus means and why it matters we'll talk about that in a moment why it matters but let's let's get to some of our callers here we'll start with pastor mark in texas thanks for calling the line of fire thanks dr brown i appreciate it i have kind of a twofold question uh for the guest first are you familiar with uh, the one that's Pentecostal view of David Bernard, the uh, the Logos being begotten at the mani- at the man- manifested at the incarnation, and previously being you know in resident in the mind of God uh, prior to that? Are you familiar with that view? I'm familiar with uh, the one that's Pentecostal view. Okay, yes. good, good. Okay, good deal. I'd like you to kind of think about how um, David Bernard's 
exact position, how it uh, completely ignores Greek grammar when it comes to the logos being present in the beginning. And for Dr. and and you can address that when I hang up because I got to go to work. But Dr. Brown, um, I'm with the with the minority uh, movement of the one of Pentecostal movement, minority side of the aisle, and we believe, contrary to Dr. Bernard, we believe that the logos was res- was present in the beginning. Um, we believe, as Tertullian, Tatian did, Hippolytus, and those, all those. Um, so we do believe in the Logos being manifest in the beginning. We just don't believe in the Logos being eternally uh, begotten as his origin taught. So kind of like what Dr. Walter Martin was teaching, uh, kind of in a way. Um, I wanted to ask you, I know you're familiar with Dr. Bernard's position. I wanted to ask you if, if you think that our position is more Jewish in thought than Dr. Bernard's position. All right, so let, let me answer that, uh, and I appreciate the, the question. Let me answer briefly and then turn it back to Pastor Randy to talk about the Greek grammar, especially in John 1.1. 1, 1. So uh, what is more Jewish? That's highly debatable, to be honest. Jewish beliefs in the ancient world were not completely monolithic, and some would argue that there was a belief in two powers in heaven, so there was room for other divine beings along with the one true God. Others would say anything other than a strict monotheism is not fully Jewish. My question, honestly, is not not to bypass that, but to say we still have to ask what's the biblical position. So I would say yours is closer to the biblical position, but would say needs just one more step, one more nudge in the right direction. But thank you. Thank you for the call and the the literate uh, question. So, Randy, is there uh, anything in the Greek grammar, either in John 1, 1 or 1, 14 or 1, 18, that would indicate that the Logos is anything more than just being in the mind of God. So, so this is the word, the, the, the mind, some, a thought within God that we're actually talking about being substance in some way. I, I definitely think so. In John one, one, uh, it says the word was with God and the expression that John uses there, uh, really means a personal kind of a face to face relationship. And so uh, the Son, or the Word in that particular verse, it has this relationship with, it, it implies more than just the Word being a concept or an idea uh, or a personification. And we see that later when we get down to um, uh, verse 18. It says that the Word is in the bosom of the Father. And uh, is is loved by the Father, and he's called God there. So uh, I think that those would give you some really strong indications that there is uh, something very personal here about this word, uh, God the Son. And then later in the book, as the book progresses, you see Jesus talking about his preexistence. Uh, and he remembers back, he says, the glory I had with you, Father, before the creation of the world. He says that in John 17. He also said, yeah. you have loved me before the creation of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. There he's claiming eternal existence, not just pre-existence, but eternal existence. And he says, I am, not it was, but I am. So I think the case that... Uh, the, the Word was not personal uh, before he came into the world uh, or came upon Jesus the man is just really a non-starter. It's held by some uh, pretty highfalutin scholars these days, but 
it's really it doesn't really add up with the evidence that we have in John. Yeah. So again, if you if you think of just reading things naturally, if you didn't know anything else, even the fact that John one one starts with the words in the beginning and the Greek going back to the Greek translation of Genesis one one. So so you're getting back to the beginning of all things. And the word literally facing God, and then in the bosom of God, uh, these, and then as you re- reference John 17, something that, that Dr. James White and I pressed over and over in a debate that Jesus spoke of the glory he enjoyed with the Father before the world began. We were debating guys that didn't even believe in the preexistence of the Son. Right, right. So they didn't even think he was created in a preexistent way. Uh, these things just uh, are, are demolished by the plain sense of Scripture. Speaking with Pastor Randy Rehm, his new book, God the Son, about John's presentation of Jesus. We're going to keep digging in. It's a book you'll really enjoy. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. What does it matter? Let's say you believe Jesus died for our sins. He was perfect, sinless, and God sent him into the world. He was a man, and then God raised him up in a glorious way. Or he was created by God and came into the world to save us for our sins, or he's eternally one with God, or he's another manifestation of God. It doesn't matter. The same blood saves us. The same God saves us. What does it matter? That's a question many people have, and they, they think we shouldn't be all hung up on this, and all these different paths go in the same direction to the same destination. It doesn't matter. My guest, Pastor Randy Ream, says it absolutely matters, and John very specifically lays things out in a clear way so that we will know why this is important. He is the author of a new book called God the Son. And if you have a question about this, about the deity of Jesus, especially in John's Gospel, or the presentation of God's triunity in Scripture, today's a great day to call 866-348-7884. So, Randy, simple question. Why does it matter? Well, think of it this way. If you really look up to a certain entertainer or leader or artist or whatever it may be, and that artist is going to meet with you personally, is that a bigger deal than if he sends somebody else to just meet with you on his behalf? The incarnation that God became man shows that God literally has skin in the game. It shows us how much he loves us. If he had sent somebody else, a representation, a God or something, to save us, well, that would have been nice, but it it would tell me uh, a lot more if he came himself. It would tell me that he really personally cares. He becomes one of us. He becomes man in the Incarnation. He's still God. He's God and man simultaneously. And also, it helps answer the question, well, how in the world can one man pay for the sins of everybody, past, present, and future, of all people who have ever been born? Uh, it, it would seem that 
the life of one person, if he's just a man, would not be enough <laughs> uh, by any means to atone for the sins of the whole world. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, God, his life is of infinite value. And so if he gives his, his life, if, if, if he is uh, the one who pays the sacrifice, it pays for the, the sins of the whole world. But of course, if he's a man, then he can die. He can die physically. Only man should pay, but only God could pay the, uh, the price of, of salvation. And so mm. it's, it works out perfectly in the Incarnation. Yeah, and loud and clear in terms of, of why things matter. And, and again, one reason that I really appreciated Randy's work and wrote the foreword to his book, God the Son, was because he broke things down with such clarity and in ways that you'd remember vividly as well. So we'll, we'll give you some of those illustrations, some of the, the, the chapter titles and things like that in a moment. But let's, let's go back to the phones. Uh, we go to Boston. Eric, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, my question pertains to John chapter 10, verse 34, and this is a question regarding sort of objections that are given by, you know, people who are against the deity of Jesus, whether the Jehovah's Witnesses, Unitarians, Muslims, whatever they are. And they'll, they'll use this verse to argue against the deity of Jesus by taking, the, you know, the larger context is that the Jews take pick up stones to stone Jesus, and they say, you're a man and you're blaspheming because you're making yourself equal to God. And Jesus, um, they say Jesus is, re is, is um, refuting that idea by stating that, you know, in Psalm chapter 82, it says, is it not written in your law that I said you are God's? And goes on to say, so how can you say that I'm blaspheming because I'm saying I'm the Son of God? So they say to us, um, how is it that you're siding with the unbelieving Jews here and, and you're taking their interpretation of Jesus when Jesus clearly refuted that idea? I'm just curious how you guys respond to that. Thank you. Yeah, great question, and presented very clearly. Thank you, Eric. Go ahead, Randy. Well, it, the, the key to that is, what does Jesus mean by Son of God in John's Gospel? Earlier in chapter 5, verse 18, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus because he had called God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And so they understood that Jesus wasn't talking about divine sonship uh, in terms of, uh, like the Old Testament had, or the Jewish literature at the time, a metaphorical sonship, uh, where, you know, the, the uh, pious Jew or the angel is like God in some ways, and so he can be called a son of God. No, Jesus was talking about something more than that. He was talking about being an actual, a true son of God, which is what the prologue of John's Gospel says, that he is the one and only, or as some would put it, the only begotten son of God. So the Jews realized what Jesus was saying. He was claiming that God was his father in a special sense, an actual sense, a true sense. And so when, when he calls himself the son of God uh, in John 10, uh, you, they still want to kill him. Even after his explanation about from his quotation from uh, the Psalms, he's saying, look, if, if uh, the angels or the judges, whatever interpretation you take of uh, Psalm 82.6 there, if they can be called gods, how much more 
the Son of God who was sent by the Father into the world. Uh, they considered this a claim to be deity. And the proof of that, if, if that doesn't still convince you, is you go over to John 19, and there uh, they say to Pilate, we have a law, and by our law he has to die because he made himself the Son of God. That was blasphemy as far as they were concerned. And what about, what's he actually saying then about, well, if you're called God's, isn't that almost saying, well, that the word has no meaning there, that God's is less than son of God? How would you respond to that? Well, you could be called God in a representational sense in the Old Testament, or the Elohim were called, you know, they were the gods, the, the council of the gods. Um, this was understood, uh, but God later clarifies, Yahweh clarifies, uh, in Deuteronomy and Isaiah, that there's really only one being who truly deserves that title. And so uh, you, you might refer to the Davidic king possibly as God, uh, or the angels as, as gods, uh, or sons of God, but the term really and truly uh, applies to one being and one being only, and that is Yahweh, in the true and final sense. And that's the nomenclature that God himself prefers. Uh, he sort of accommodates himself to the, uh, the, the nomenclature of the day in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it, you know, that, that, uh, the writers of, in the New Testament uh, refer to uh, the divine beings that were called gods in the Old Testament as angels or demons or uh, other sorts of creatures. Uh, Paul talks about uh, powers and authorities and that kind of thing. He doesn't call them gods anymore, uh, because God seems to make it clear. Yahweh makes it clear in the Old Testament, look, I'm the only one who really deserves that title in the final analysis. Got it. Well said. All right, Eric, thank you. Uh, let's go to Othiel in Kansas. Welcome to the line of fire. Hello, can you hear me well? Yes, we can. Go ahead. All right, so it's one thing that I'd like to address. The previous caller, he made a very good point when he brought up Psalms 82. Mm -hmm. Now, listen to Psalms 82, verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. And if you turn to the first psalm, in, and the second psalm, I'm sorry, excuse me, Psalm 2, verse 10. Mm -hmm. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. How to be instructed? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way. And I'm going to get back to this in a moment to ask you, uh, Rabbi, because I appreciate you. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Now, my question first is, Rabbi, do you believe that the Ruach Hashem still flows through the people of the earth? Yeah, by the way, I'm not a, a rabbi, but I appreciate that. Yeah, I believe the Holy Spirit still works among God's people on the earth and does other things on the earth. Sure. All right. Now, I had a, a gentleman come to my house the other day with his son, I believe it was, and they were Jehovah Witnesses. Now, I know that in the Bible it says that so long as it is in your power, be at peace with all men. So I gave him, you know, a time to... Yeah, to, hey, just, just, yeah, uh, I hate to interrupt, sir. I, but, I apologize. Okay, so I'll get straight to the point. My yeah. my thing is, how can I go to that place and witness to them the truth? 
Right. Well, best best thing to do is is uh, pray for divine appointments. You won't be welcomed if you go to Jehovah's Witness gathering. You won't be welcomed there. Uh, but they do come through the neighborhood and they do work jobs and do other things. I would pray for divine appointments. I would pray for God to bring those that are open, that are willing to hear and that uh, look for opportunities to share with them or look online to see if they're chat groups that they're part of and share, share the word with them in that respect. But thank you for the question, Othiel. Uh, Randy, a question for you in terms of John, the 12th chapter, this seems to be another tremendously strong incident of John pointing to Jesus deity by joining together uh, Isaiah six, where Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and is undone in his presence. Isaiah six and Isaiah 53 says it's the same one that's being spoken of there. Do you think that's another very overt reference to the deity of Jesus in John? I think it definitely is. Jesus or John there combines two passages from uh, Isaiah, one from uh, chapter six of Isaiah and the other one from Isaiah 53, and he relates them both to Jesus, and he says that John spoke of this when, uh, or, or Isaiah said this, when he saw Jesus' glory, he saw his glory, and the, uh, the incident that he refers to is when Yahweh appeared to Isaiah in Isaiah 6, and uh, the, the seraphim were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. His glory fills the earth. And so uh, John is indicating that that was a pre-incarnate appearance of Yahweh, Jesus, in yeah. that passage. So, yeah, I think that's one of the instances that show in John's Gospel that uh, John regarded Jesus as having appeared in the Old Testament. Yeah. Loud and clear. Hey, we come back. I want to ask Pastor Randy, what does he mean by calling Jesus God's junior partner? We'll be right back. It's the line of fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for being part of today's broadcast. We're not focusing on the political chaos in our nation today. We're focusing on the Word of God, in particular John's Gospel, in particular his presentation of the deity of Jesus. My guest, Dr. Randy Ream, I've alternately called him pastor and doctor because he has a phd and he is a pastor if you want his full-blown academic study on this last name is spelled r-h-e-a-u-m-e the book is an exegetical and theological analysis of the son's relationship to the father god's equal and subordinate the book we're talking about today god the son what john's portrait of jesus means and why it matters i wrote the foreword to the book and some of the chapter titles Chapter 1, Entering John's World. Chapter 2, The World Behind John's World. Chapter 3, God's Feature Film. Chapter 4, God's Equal. Chapter 5, God's Junior Partner. Skip down to Chapter 7, Life on Steroids. Chapter 9, Earthquake of the Soul. Uh, Obviously written in a way that is compelling. So you speak of the Son as God's equal, Jesus being eternal deity, the Son being eternal deity, obviously equal to the Father, but yet you refer to him as God's junior partner. 
And John frequently refers to Jesus speaking of his honoring the Father and he's praying to the Father. Well, how, how can it be both? How can you be equal to and yet subordinate to? Obviously, there are answers, but these are the kind of questions people ask. So how is Jesus equal and yet God's junior partner? Well, that's the question that comes up in chapter 5 of John's Gospel. Uh, they accuse Jesus of uh, making himself equal to God, and of course Jesus didn't make himself equal to God. He was equal to God, but Jesus is sensitive to the charge because they think he's uh, he's claiming to be an upstart deity, that uh, he's cl- he's claiming to you know be on the same level of the Father in in an upstart sort of a way, and Jesus wants to show in uh, John five which I devote an entire chapter to in my book, because it's such a key chapter in John's Gospel. Jesus shows that he is divine, that he is equal to the Father, because he has the same prerogatives as the Father. He, uh, he, he made the world, he, uh, he, he is to be equally honored along with the Father, but... And here's the other side of the coin that we haven't talked much about in, in the show so far, and that is that he is a son a son who shows full deference to his father. He says that he can do nothing by himself. Uh, He can only do what he sees the father doing. Um, And there are many statements in John's Gospel where Jesus emphasizes this deference, this this subordination uh, that he has to the father. It's not a subordination of what he is, what he is is ontologically equal to the Father, but he is functionally, in his role, subordinate to the Father. Uh, certainly in the Old Testament and in the parlance of Jesus' day, even among the Gentiles, and certainly among the Jews, the Father was considered the head of the family. And Jesus uses that kind of imagery to uh, to detail his relationship to the Father. And so clearly Jesus is saying, yes, I'm a true son, which makes me equal to the Father in what I am, but as a son, I defer to the Father, because sons do that, obedient sons do that, and I am an obedient son. I do exactly what the Father tells me. Um, I, I can't speak a word unless I have his okay, his nod. So the Son is equal to the Father in what he is, in his deity, in his ontological being, but he is subordinate in his rank or his role, if you will, in his function. And that's something that I think is not just true of Jesus' earthly ministry, but is true of the Trinity uh, uh, in eternity as well, that the Father is the head of the Trinity, and it, it's it's not you know some sort of a, a, a menial, demeaning uh, servitude or anything like that. It's a divine, loving relationship uh, between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit submits to both the Father and the Son. So, would would you then feel it's important to combat a modalistic view? that God reveals himself as Father, as Son, as Spirit, but God is actually not Father, Son, and Spirit 
that there's that there it's not just a philosophical difference but a difference of substance absolutely i think the testimony of scripture is clear john 1 1 makes them two distinct uh persons and later in the gospel of john jesus says in your law uh, it says the testimony of two uh, persons is is valid well i testify and so does my father well that would make no sense if jesus is really the same person as the Father. They have to be distinct persons in order for that Scripture to make any sense. Yeah, great, great point. And again, just opening up what Scripture is clearly teaching. Uh, let's grab another call. We'll go over to Raleigh. Is it Levi or the Hebrew way, Levi? Levi. Levi. All right. I had to ask. Yes, sir, your question. Yes, sir. If, if God is omnipotent and omniscient and able to create all things and all life, why couldn't he be man and God at the same time? Fair question. Uh, what would you comment on that, Randy? Well, I, I would say he absolutely can. He shows up in the Old Testament in numerous instances uh, as uh, a man, in the form of a man. And, of course, in the, in the New Testament, uh, he, he does as well. That's the grand finale. That's God's feature film, as, as I call it. But of course, in Jesus, when he became a man, he did take the form of a servant. He was in the form of God in his pre-incarnate existence, but when he came to earth as, as a man, he took the form of a servant. He emptied himself and took the form of a servant. And so this is why, when Jesus is here on the earth, uh, he doesn't know everything. He has to learn things. Uh, somebody comes up behind him and touches him, and he says, who touched me? He doesn't know the day of his return. Uh, and, of course, he's fully dependent on the Father to, uh, for all of his miracles and, and so forth. Uh, but then he's exalted back to the, to the highest place, and he's given the name that's above every name. And, of course, every, every Jewish person, at least traditional Jewish person, knows that that is the name Yahweh, that uh, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, says Philippians 2. So, Amen. yeah, God can do anything. He can become man if he, uh, if he chooses to, and he has chosen to, because he loves us so much, and he did this to save us. It's such a wonderful, wonderful story. And again, we have to understand that if a Jewish person hears you say Jesus is God, they often think that you're saying that God came down from heaven, ceased to be God in heaven, and walked among us on the earth like one of the Greek gods would have done, you know, Zeus or, or, or Paulus or whoever, whoever, uh, Paul, whoever else it would have been, and that he just walked among us and was no longer in heaven. So if you kill him, you kill God as opposed to the biblical view that our God sits enthroned in heaven, fills the universe with his presence, at times walks among us in flesh and blood, and, and continues to work in our midst by his invisible spirit. Would that explain, uh, Randy, why Jesus never just said, I am God, bow down and worship me, in that overt type of sentence and statement? Well, yeah, I think if, if Jesus had uh, come right out of the gate uh, claiming to be God on his first day on the job, as it were, uh, he, he would have been stoned to death. Uh, he reveals his identity slowly uh, in the Gospels, uh, not just John, but in all the Gospels. He shows the prerogatives of God, that he has those 
He, he claims to uh, forgive sin. He calls himself the Son of Man, which emphasizes deity as well as humanity. He calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. He says that he's greater than the temple. He says he who loves father and mother more than me and anybody else is not is not worthy of me. That sounds like he's claiming, you know, the Shema kind of devotion, that you've got to love him more than anyone else. Uh, also, he calls himself the I Am. Um and then in, in a passage like Luke chapter 10, verse 22, he says, No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus shows right there that he has a strategy of revealing his divine nature and his relationship with the Father. And that strategy was... Uh, is unveiled, especially in John's Gospel. Uh, when Jesus rose from the dead, that's when the cat really gets let out of the bag. The, the disciples kind of put two and two together, and it comes together in Thomas's uh, exclamation to Jesus, my Lord and my God. He really gets it then. He realizes that everything he's heard and seen through uh, the ministry of Jesus now it comes together. This yeah. was God manifest among us. This wasn't just a man. This was God in flesh. All right, friends, on that note, and well done, good timing by a pastor there, uh, we're out of time. The good news is all we did was introduce you to the book that you can now get for yourself, Pastor Randy Ream, R-H-E-A-U-M-E. I look down every time to make sure I spell it right. God the Son what John's portrait of Jesus means and why it matters. Get the book, enjoy it, and let us glorify Jesus, the Son, the Divine Son. Randy, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. God bless you. God bless.